I think the question that every human being, no matter what you do or do not believe, whether you go to church all the time or never go, or you're an atheist or a believer in the universe, the question that is the deepest question that every human being is trying to answer is what is God like? And we've been going through the Gospel of John for the last couple of months, and John is trying to tell us. So I I want you to think of a person in your life who is full of mercy. These are the people that when you have made an absolute disaster of your life, when the dumpster fire, the smoke clears from the mistakes you have made, when you open your eyes, this is the kind of person you want to see. Have you got that person in mind? And then there's another kind of person that you know. Hopefully you have both of these kinds of people in your life. The person who tells you the truth. Even when you don't want to hear it. This person is the straight shooter. They tell it like it is because they realize the truth is so precious. And they don't... They'll tell it to you even when it hurts your feelings. Have you got that person in mind? Have you noticed that they're very different people? And John is trying to tell you about Jesus, that somehow he's both. That's actually what he's been telling us for the last few months. That Jesus is God, the one and only Son sent from God, full of both grace and truth. Not Sometimes grace, sometimes truth. Not grace at the expense of truth or truth at the expense of grace, but full of both at the same time. Which are two very different things. And so, in the second chapter of John, Jesus, God in the flesh, goes to a wedding and turns water into wine. A lot of us think that if God goes to a party, He would turn wine into water, but that's not what He does. This is Jesus full of grace. And the very next story, he goes to the temple, the most holy religious uh, uh, place in the world. And because he, had, he saw that people were using the name of God to make a buck and to exclude other people, Jesus goes Indiana Jones and makes a whip. People are like, what are you doing, Jesus? is like, I'll show you in just a minute what I'm doing. And he goes in and he drives these men out with a whip. This is God full of truth. The very next story, Nicodemus comes to him in the middle of the night. He's a religious leader and he's basically like, oh, what did you do in the temple? And he has, has this conversation with Jesus. And Jesus tells him, Nicodemus, for all your religion... It's not going to get you where you think it's going to. This is Jesus, full of truth. And the very next story, a woman who's been married five times approaches him. The man she's living with now is not even her husband. And Jesus tenderly gets into this woman's deepest pain and shame and changes her life. This is what it looks like to be full of both grace and truth, justice and mercy. And I don't know another another story in the Bible that better shows you the character and nature of what God is like than this. 
But first, let me set it up for you. So in John chapter 7, the Israelites, to this day, they celebrate this festival called the Feast of Tabernacles, which is basically like a feast of tents uh, because it's a camping festival. Like as a religious holiday, for one week, they will camp to this day outside And they do this as a community and they do this to remember a time in Israel's history when God delivered them from slavery and they stayed in the wilderness for 40 years. And the entire time God provided for them bread and water. So Jewish people were doing this in the day of Jesus. They do it today. And on the seventh day, on the seventh day, they will offer a water sacrifice. Now, if water doesn't sound like a sacrifice to you, it's because you don't live in the Middle East. But it was a really big deal. They're reminded God provided for them in both food and water in the wilderness. And at the seventh day, in John chapter 7, Jesus stands up and says this. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood up and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, Rivers of living water will flow from him. Now, the high priest is supposed to make this speech. Pour out water and talk about God being the living water. And Jesus, this is a Kanye West, Taylor Swift moment. The high priest is going to do it. Jesus all of a sudden stands up and says this. The, The religious leaders are like, you just can't have a good religious ceremony with Jesus around. Now, when he says this, he's quoting Isaiah 55, but more than that, he's saying, I am the sacrifice. And the religious leaders do what any institution does when their power starts to get threatened. They start to feel threatened by him and think of a way of retaliating. So you would think that Jesus would need to, you know, like kind of lay low for a little bit. But he doesn't. Instead... This happens. If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. And he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher... This woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. So when it says they're using this as a trap to trap him, here's what it meant. Rome ruled all the world with their great military armies. They ruled from England to India. And the way they did that, because it would stretch any nation thin, was they would go into a country and they would raise up a puppet king, somebody whose job was to keep the peace and only really report to Rome. Herod, King Herod, was in charge of that uh, in Israel in Jesus' day. And the way... Herod did it was he would strategically put places that were like potential flash mobs. He would put put Roman soldiers there. So in the temple, if you've been to the um, Holy Lands, you've seen there were arch, there are um, uh, towers, observation towers, four observation towers in this area, which meant this whole thing is being watched by Roman soldiers from their towers. 
Because the temple was the most likely place for a riot to start. So Jesus is there teaching and the religious leaders have this whole scene under the observation of Roman soldiers. And the reason they're doing this is because the Jews have absolutely no authority to execute anyone. In fact, you see this in the Gospel of John a little bit later when the Jews are wanting to kill Jesus. They take him to Pilate and Pilate says, judge him by your own law. And they say, we don't have any right to execute anyone. So that's what they're trying to do to Jesus. Moses said this woman should be stoned. Here she is, Jesus. What do you say? Because if Jesus says, look, Moses was saying that in a different time and place. Um, you know, we can't, we don't have the authority to do that. Everybody will think, okay, look, Jesus is soft on sin and he is disagreeing with Moses. But if he says, you're right, Moses said it, let's get our rocks. Then the Roman soldiers will get involved and that will lead to Jesus being silenced, arrested or executed. That's the trap. And the Israelites, the religious leaders, they bring this woman quoting Moses. But look at what Moses actually says. It's from Leviticus 20. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. Where's the man? It's like they forgot the ancient proverb. It takes two to tango. So they bring this woman on her own. She's probably not dressed for church, but she's in it. She's in this, uh, you know, open space. And her secret shame has now become incredibly public. And the irony that John wants you to see here is that these men are using this woman just as much as any man she's ever been in a bedroom with. They don't see her as a person. She's a prop. They're using her to get to Jesus. What's it going to be, Jesus? Moses or Rome? And either way, they win, Jesus loses, and the woman too. And so Jesus bends down and starts riding in the dirt. I think he's trying to take the attention off of her. I think this woman is incredibly shamed, incredibly vulnerable. Everybody's watching her. And then all of a sudden, Jesus starts taking the attention off. I want you to have in mind this morning the thing you very much try to keep out of your mind. I don't know what your greatest point of failure is in your life, but I bet it won't take you long to come up with it. The thing that you don't want anybody else in this room to know about. Because that's what happened to this woman. I want you to be able to see yourself in this story. It's important to be able to see yourself in this story. She never planned on being here. And maybe you've had the experience of your greatest shame and failures going public. But I can tell you Jesus is the kind of guy you want when that happens. Because he knows us. And he knows since Adam and Eve, we've rebelled. And as soon as Adam and Eve rebelled, the first thing he, we felt, the first thing they felt was shame and fear. And that is something all of us can relate to. And Jesus knows that's what this woman is feeling. So she, he bends down and he writes... 
And he takes the attention off of her. Now, the idea of killing someone for this sounds barbaric to us. In part because of 2,000 years of Christian history. But do you realize this still happens today? This is common practice. I remember uh, after 9-11 hearing a story, when I was in my 20s, hearing a story um, in Iraq about a woman whose dad killed her because she was flirting. The rumor was she was flirting with British soldiers. And the Iraqi police arrested the man and then they found out why he did it and they let him go. It's called an honor killing. It's common practice today. And I want you to hear this story of Jesus knowing how revolutionary Jesus was being. And, and I also want you to take seriously what the religious leaders are saying. Because adultery is wrong. Some of you have gone through that experience and you know the pain. You know the havoc it causes on people. Jesus is not saying this is okay. In fact, in the Bible, the primary metaphor God uses for the pain of God's people not following God, not being obedient to the covenant, is adultery. Some of y'all know that verse, God hates divorce. Do you know he's speaking that as a divorcee? That his people left him. If you want to see how how, um, blunt the Bible is, read Ezekiel 36. It is graphic description of what God is saying God's people have done. You've cheated on me. In other words, God knows the pain of a wounded lover. So this is not something God winks at. But if Jesus is God in the flesh, you get to see the way God responds. And it's not the way we would have thought. In verse 7, when they kept on questioning him, Jesus straightened up and said to them, let anyone who is of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he bent down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then I don't condemn you either. Go now and leave your life of sin. He says to the religious leaders, you're right, you've got a point. Justice demands to be served. And the first one of you whose life doesn't need justice, pick up that stone. They all came in with righteous indignation. They wanted justice. This is wrong. This is more than wrong. This is evil. This is what ideologies do. Religious ideologies, secular ideologies, categorizes us into us and them. The squeaky clean, nice us, evil, bad, them. And in a brilliant move, Jesus recategorizes between sinners that admit and sinners that deny. And one at a time, they drop their stones and walk away. When I was in college, I worked at this inner city, during summer, I worked at this inner city camp in Nashville. 
with one of my best friends, Michael Peters. And he and I were doing a devotional one time on forgiveness. And so we had all these kids. They had backpacks. We loaded up their backpacks with rocks and we went on a hike. And about a mile into the hike, we turned around to them and talked about how going through life with a lot of bitterness and forgiveness is like this. You're going through life, you're weighed down. And you may have a lot of good reasons for carrying your rocks, but over time it's just heavy. And so we try to give them this profound moment where we let them, you know, empty their backpacks and walk in freedom from forgiveness, with forgiveness. And about 20 minutes later, we thought it was a profound little devo. About 20 minutes later, a kid comes running up with blood coming out of his head. And he's like, Quentin and Quincy, who are these twins that we loved, uh, Quentin and Quincy are throwing rocks at people. So we go to Quentin and Quincy and we're like, what? What are you doing? Where'd you get those rocks? And they're like, you gave them to us. And we were like, dude, are you throwing forgiveness rocks? And they, were, they said something profound like, hey, they throw just as good as regular rocks. Listen, if you've been around for any amount of time at all, you've got good reasons to want to throw rocks. They hurt you. They stole something. They broke something that can't be put back together. But no matter what your good reasons are, the words of Jesus are really hard to ignore. Does anybody have a reason to throw rock at you? And because we're all in the same boat and we're all seasick, sounds like what you need is grace. And so Jesus says, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. And, and what I want you to see here is that Jesus accepts what the religious leaders are saying. The Old Testament code of conduct. But he removes the penalty. He doesn't wink at it. He doesn't pretend like it's okay. This is not tolerance. This is life-giving grace. And I think this story shows so much about the heart of God. Do you see what Jesus does here? I think constantly in, in his life, he's, he's deciding, do I lead with grace or truth? And I think this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. How do you parent? How do you be a co-worker? How do you be a friend? He goes in first grace and then truth. Do you see it? Neither do I condemn you. Grace. Now go and leave your life of sin. Truth. I think there's something to this order. Some of us jump to truth before showing grace. And others of us show grace without ever getting to the truth. There's so much we can learn from this story if you can see this story is you. This is why the Gospel of John, the Gospel that emphasizes the cross in a different way but more than any other Gospel, wants you to see this. Because this woman is you. This story happened, but it also happens. You know why? Because we have an accuser. One of the ways that the Bible, that's point number one, we have an accuser. 
Maybe you haven't been caught red-handed and dragged out in public, and maybe you have, but we all stand accused. John, who wrote this gospel, is later going to say in the book of Revelation, he's going to describe it like this. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world away. He is the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night. It's interesting, in the same chapter, Jesus is going to go on to say to those religious leaders, your, uh, your father is Satan. And they don't like that very much. That they're accusing. Some of you have had an accuser in your life regularly. Some of us have been that. And if your life is one long guilt trip, Jesus isn't driving. Now, having said that, do you notice there's truth in the accusation? It would not take much for anyone to look at your life for long without realizing the things that you have done that you might be really good at PR for, but that are really indefensible. Maybe you're a victim of other people's actions. Maybe not. But even if this woman had been just set up, she still had some responsibility for her part of it. And Jesus does not come arguing extenuating circumstances. He doesn't come pleading her innocence. In fact, the whole reason He came is for this. Which leads me to a third reflection. Jesus came to stand between us and condemnation. And the truth is He stands between the religious leader and their condemnation as well. It seems like everybody's let off the hook here except for Jesus. Because, and this is what John wants you to see, the chapter opens up with the religious leader picking up stones to throw at her. And the chapter ends with them picking up stones to throw at him. And this story, Jesus takes her place. This is what John has been telling us all along. You remember chapter 1? John the Baptist, look, the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. Somebody's going to suffer for this adultery. Somebody's going to suffer for these religious leaders' self-righteous pride. But it wouldn't be her. It wouldn't be them. It would be him. What he did for her is a preview of what he's doing for all of us. This is what John has been telling us. This is who God is. He did not come into the world to condemn the world. In John 3, He didn't come to condemn the world. He came to save the world through Him. And it's a free gift. And you can, you can condemn yourself by refusing to accept it. But this is not... There is no condemnation. In the words of one of the early Christian leaders, Paul... There is no condemnation for those who are in King Jesus. Or a couple of verses later, who then condemns us? No one. King Jesus died. And more than that, he was raised to life. He's at the right hand of God interceding for us. He's doing today for you, Christian, what he did for this woman. That's why it's important to be able to put yourself in this situation. He's doing for you today what he did for this woman. John, who wrote this gospel, is also going to write other churches a few decades or a few decades after the resurrection. And one of the things he says is this. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, 
We have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. This is what grace is. And it is grace. And it is costly grace. Because Jesus just shamed these religious leaders in an honor-shame culture. He knows this is going to cost him. He is, in essence, taking her place. And this is what the cross does. It does not just forgive us. It changes us. Jesus says to this woman, Go and leave your life of sin. But that comes from the lips of a man who believes in her future enough to die to give her one. All throughout the Bible, there are these two themes. Justice and mercy. And there are moments in God's story where people like Abraham and Moses beg with God not to give justice. Don't give the people what they deserve. Don't give me what I deserve. Not yet. And then there's people like Jonah who hate God's mercy. It's, it's like these two different opposites. They tend to go in different directions. And they're hard to hold on to at both. At both at the same time. And what I've noticed, and this is true throughout Christian history, is that each generation kind of reacts to the generation before it. So growing up in Churches of Christ in Arkansas... I grew up in what I would consider a truth culture. We talked a lot about truth. So much so that stories like this kind of made us uncomfortable. By the way, we're not the first generation to struggle with that. There's a scholar named Kenneth Bailey who lived for decades in the Middle East. And he says the reason this story wasn't in some of the most ancient manuscripts is because the scribes didn't want to copy it. They didn't want this grace getting out. They're like, Jesus, it could ruin entire cultures. It could destroy families. If people knew this kind of stuff could be forgiven. I grew up in a truth culture. The last 10 years, it seems like we've been a grace culture. And I've actually heard a lot against this story there. How judgmental when Jesus says to this woman, leave your life of sin. Early on, this has been the case. Justice and mercy. Grace and truth. Some people like the God of justice. And others like to focus on God's mercy. And John is letting us know, we don't get to pick. This is what God is like. He's full of both. And by the way, aren't you glad? See, justice sounds great until you need mercy. And mercy sounds wonderful until you need justice. And it is at the cross of Jesus Christ that you see how those both coexist at the same time. God gives us a different kind of justice. This is the way the ancient prophets talked about it. And then when they saw Jesus, when they saw his ministry, they said, this is what that kind of justice is. 
Isaiah would say, this is the kind of justice it is. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. Listen, today's versions of justice, the secular versions of it, are really just warmed over self-righteousness. Justice without mercy isn't just. And mercy without justice is just warmed over apathy. It fails to deliver the truth that things can change. People can change. Mercy without justice isn't really merciful. But the deep ache of the world for both justice and mercy, you see it in the cross. This is who God is. And so today I want to close with three questions. They're personal ones. Because this woman is us. Is you. Will you allow those words, who are your condemners? No one. Will you allow the words no one to include you? According to Jesus in the New Testament, grace is our only hope. Do you know the admission ticket to the kingdom of God is all the things that ought to kick you out? He has come to set us free. And His intention is that we will never be the same. Which leads me to the second question. What do you need to leave? Honestly, grace doesn't just forgive. It transforms. It changes. For this woman, it's probably to leave her lifestyle or, you know, the adulterous relationship. Every Monday night at this church and hundreds of churches around the country, there's a ministry called Regeneration. It's, it's a recovery ministry, but it's recovery from more than just drugs and alcohol. It's also anger problems, anxiety problems, whatever you got going on in your life. There are godly people who are walking through letting the Holy Spirit transform them. Every Monday night that's happening at this church. And if there's something Jesus is calling you to leave, then it's a great ministry. Later on in the Gospel of John, Jesus is going to say, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. You know what Jesus does for this woman and for you? He doesn't change your past. But it takes the condemnation out of it. He gives her a future. Her past can't be changed, but it could be made over. It gave him new meaning to her life. Some of y'all have seen the movie The Natural. Great movie about a baseball player who's like one of the, the best baseball player ever, accordingly, according to the movie. And then he makes some stupid choices. And he loses his career. And there's a scene in the end of the movie where Glenn Close is talking to Robert Redford, the baseball player. And she says, I believe each of us have two lives. The life we learn from and the life we live after that. Because of Jesus, there really can be a life you live after that. Is there an area of your life that's dark? I want to invite you... To go to regeneration. It's a great ministry. Or share it with another brother or sister in your group life. This is how we grow in grace. And finally, how do we live in light of this with each other? Because the cross really is God showing us how to live with both justice and mercy. And here's what I think it looks like. 
Put down your stones. I know you've got reasons to hold on to them. He filed. She filed. First. Put down your stones. He stole my childhood. She took something away that can never be brought back. Put down your stones. But he ruined my life. Put down your stones. They failed me. He stole my innocence. Put down your stones. She robbed the best years. He knew better. Because Jesus took the brunt of justice. And because if you are really self-aware and honest, everybody's got good reasons to be able to throw stones at you too. By throwing rocks, you know what we're saying? We're saying the cross isn't enough. It is inconceivable to me that Christians would be known as judgmental. Like, do you realize this is what God is like? Do you realize we're all this woman? We are sinners anonymous. The only admission ticket to the kingdom of God is the list of reasons you should be kicked out of it. We follow a man who says, put down your stones because justice and mercy have been delivered for all. Jesus took her place. He took your place. So a little over 20 years ago, Leslie and I were studying abroad in Greece. And at the end of that semester, we went with a group of friends on free travel and we went to Poland because we wanted to see Auschwitz, the, Holocaust, the concentration camp. It's a very heavy experience. But one of the things I wanted to see on that day was the prison cell of this man, Maximilian Kolbe. He was a Catholic priest who was in Auschwitz. And I know about his story because the Nazis, they did this thing every week where they would call out ten random names of inmates that they were going to take and put in jail cells and starve to death. The Nazis would do this just to keep morale low. And one day, they called out the ten names and one of them was a guy named Frank. And as soon as his name was called, Frank began to weep and wail. My kids, my wife. And so Maximilian Colby stepped forward. It's the only time we know of this happening. Stepped forward and asked the Nazi guards, could I take Frank's place? And they said yes. And this was the jail cell of Maximilian Colby where he spent his last few weeks slowly being starved to death. That's what Jesus did. Both in this story and on the cross. It's justice, it's mercy, and he's both. Praise God be to God. I'd like to invite our prayer teams to take their places around the auditorium. We're going to have a season of singing and worship. Listen, whatever condemnation you feel,
Christian, that is not from God. Would you let freedom happen to you today? Would you not walk out with the shame you may have carried around for days, weeks, months, or even years? Would you let this story change you? And if you're here and this grace is something you know your soul is hungry for, you want to learn more about Jesus, you want to put him on in baptism, I'll be right down here. You can come ask me any questions about baptism. I'd love to tell you about it because that's what it means. Baptism means Jesus has taken my place. It is the free gift of God of the gospel. So we're going to stand and sing about this fountain that is free, this living water that is unmerited grace. There's a fountain.